in chapter 4. Um, I, I wanted to begin a uh, series tonight uh, that I've titled uh, In the Way of Worldliness. And, um, but we've had some questions come across the wire, uh, one of which, in, in my opinion, if, if we are going to do it justice, is going to take a little bit of time tonight. So what I've done is I have, I have postponed the sermon of, on worldliness and, uh, and I, I do, in, in all fairness, I, I'm, I've been working on, in my heart and my mind, I've been working on this, uh, this series, been kind of itching to preach it, and I, uh, um, it's last Sunday night, man, I kept jumping into the, into the subject and the verses down in Cardiff, and I was like, my soul, man. So I kept referring back, saying, hey, you know, uh, I'll start that on Wednesday night, Wednesday night. But the questions that came across um, really and truly are so deep and so good. It's a serious, serious topic. Um, and so I wanted to, uh, especially one of them, is, is a very serious topic. Um, I, think, I think we should take some time to go over them. So when, we're doing a, when we get into question two tonight, <clears throat> um, I'm going to go slow and I'm going to go clear. But to put your heart at ease, I, I've printed off in grave detail uh, the answer to the question. Okay, so if there's any uh, uh, dispute with certain people in your life that you shouldn't hang out with, um, I, uh, <laughs> I, you can just give them that. Take two copies and just say, here, help yourself. So anyway, uh, praise the Lord. Amen. No, so let's get into Q&A tonight. And guys, as you know, I love Q&A. I really do. I always have. Um, I, I, again, it comes from Pastor Ellis. He, he always did Q&A. And um, just coming from that, being, being trained up underneath him, and uh, it, it's, it's, I love it. I do. I love Q&A. And uh, so I'll, I'll keep an eye on the time tonight, make sure that we are um, conscious about that, because I know several road closures. We got stuck last week, I think it was, uh, thinking we were safe, and you guys are the ones that was getting always, and then we get on the road, and we missed it by five minutes. And so we had to go from here to Texas and back to get five miles. And uh, so anyway, that's the way it is. So in Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. The question is, is why is God angry with Ananias and Sapphira? Um, seeing it was their home, their own home, okay? Uh, the house was theirs, the property was theirs that they were to sell and uh, to give the money there for the, for, um, the local church, if you will, for this, this new work uh, that had been started. And uh, so let's read with me, beginning in Acts chapter 4, and uh, we'll lay the foundation and look into verse 31. Verse 31, we're going to read all the way down to Acts in chapter 5 and verse 11. Now the Bible says that when they had prayed, uh, uh, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled, or they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which uh, he possessed was his own, but they uh, had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them uh, that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the other things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joses, who, was by, the, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While whilst it remained, uh, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not uh, in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young man arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them uh, which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then, then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young man, carried, carry, uh, sorry, young man came in, and found her dead, and carried her forth, and buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. So to answer the question, why was, was, was God um, angry? You know, why did this happen um, as a result? Because you know, it, was, it was their own. It was their possession, yeah? The first thing that I do want to draw a little bit of a conclusion here tonight, um, this is the first attempt that you ever find of communism. And it doesn't make it past a handful of verses. <laughs> every country, every organization, every institution... Uh, that has ever attempted to bring communism into a country or socialism has utterly failed or devastated the nation. It doesn't matter if it's socialism. It doesn't matter if it's communism. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because of human nature. Okay? If people are not encouraged to work and provide for themselves, they're going to let their counterpart do it for them. Okay? We see this right here. I mean, we're, we're, I don't know the time frame between uh, verse 31 of Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 of Acts chapter 5, but as you read it, it doesn't seem like it was that long. Okay? It just simply does not work, guys, uh, just like in every other situation. Nonetheless, guys, in the early church, which would have had nothing, it was in its infant state, keep in mind, this early church, guys, you know, we have a building here. They had the temple. Matter of fact, the, the Christians, the born-again believers, were still going to temple years down the line, okay? It wasn't until the Apostle Paul comes around, until his second mission journey, do we find the first, uh, the, uh, the, fir the, the first day of the week become the time when you go to church on the Sunday. Matter of fact, we know that it was there in Corinth when uh, he went right from one door into the other door to the house of justice, and that's where he began to teach on the first day of the week. Prior to that, guys, he was preaching and teaching while the, on the Sabbath, on that seventh day, while they were in the synagogue right next door, fixed hard up against it. And it's believed that as he preached the gospel, they are still hearing the gospel next door, even though he was ran out of the synagogue or turned on his heels and went to the Gentiles. We know that Crispus, who was the, the leader of the synagogue at that time, was converted and saved and born again and went next door. And then later on, Sosthenes, after the false accusation against Paul, uh, did the same thing. Of course, he was beaten down by the magistrates and all of this and that. And Paul was forgiving and took, took care of him. And Sosthenes got saved, okay? But all of those things began to change in Corinth. And that they started to worship and come to church on the first day of the week. And they started planting churches. They started in 
houses in people's homes. We see that in Philippi with Lydia. She started that church, the greatest church really ever mentioned there, started right there in her house. They were house churches. Later on, years and years and years and years down the road, decades, if not centuries, did they begin to have actual church buildings as we have here today. Didn't have this in the early church, in the infant state of the church. They had nothing. You've got to keep in mind, these were staunch Jews who had converted to Christianity. So they sold their land, their possessions, much of which had they held on to them. There's a great chance, this is speculation by the way, there's a great chance they would have lost them anyway. Do you understand? So in this infant state, everyone got together and said, hey, we've got a great idea. Let's sell our possessions so that we all have things in common, so that no one is lacking. This one over here has a few things. This one over here has a whole load of things. We all come together, and each one pulls their part. So they, they sold their land in order so, so that no one would have lack. They shared everything. Yet Ananias and Sapphira, as you see, they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They said, you know what? We're going to sell our possessions. We're selling this land. But we're going to keep back a little bit just for ourselves. We're going to come back. Now, I'm going to tie this to lack of faith in God that he could provide for them. That's where I'm going to tie that to. I've had conversations with people about being faithful to church on Wednesday. And the, the, the statement I have been given by several in the past has been, well, you know, I got to do this X, Y, and Z. I got to do this. I got to do that. I said, no, what you need to do is you need to block it off on your calendar of your heart. You need to block it off and let God fix the rest. No, don't meet with people. Don't see people. Don't work on a Wednesday night. Get yourself in church where you belong. Don't make any other plans. I don't care if family comes by. You need to be in the house of God. Family either comes with you or they sit at home. That's what committed Christians do. You put church first and God first. Ananias and Sapphira put themselves first. This is the transitional time of the church. And even though it was theirs and everybody had this agreement that we're going to have things common, that no man, would have, no man, woman, or child would have lack, they kept back part and lied to God. They said, yeah, this is how much we sold it for, but they lied. How do we put that into our days today? It's no different than tithing today. If you make 1,200 pounds a month and you tithe 100 pounds a month, you're robbing God. Okay? You're robbing God. You know, you don't start giving truly given biblically until you get beyond that 10%. 10% is a starting point, all right? So if you make 1,200, 18, whatever it is a month, I don't know what you guys make or what I, you know, I barely know what I make half the time. So, I mean, if you're making 1,200 a month, your starting point every four weeks is, is 120 pounds, all right? And all you have done then is you've given back what you don't even own. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Like if I was to take a, I don't carry a wallet, but if I took my wallet out and I put it right here and I left it here and you brought my wallet back to me, well, that's a good thing, right? No, that's just the right thing. You're just giving me what's mine. You understand? So when you, when you pay your 10%, you're just giving God what is already his. Once you go beyond that 10%, that's when you start getting blessings, Amen. And you can say, well, preacher, I just can't afford to do that. You can't afford not to do it. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that. We always say, Carol's always, God is no man's debtor. She learned that from her daddy. And that's something that has stuck with me. She told me that good night, 11 years ago, I think it was, when we first, 11 or 12 years ago when we first met. And uh, God is no man's debtor. And that has stuck in my heart and my head. That's a great quote. You should write that on the table of your heart. Amen. 
So that's the equation. That's the equivalent, if you will, of what's going on here is that Ananias and Sapphira promised in their heart to give something. Then they yet lied unto God, lied unto the Holy Spirit um, as they came and only gave, you know, part of that. And uh, that's the equivalent, as you would say, into our our day today. Um, And you need to think on those things, guys. You need to think on those things. Uh, There's a lot of people, there's a load of people uh, in churches today who... um, Struggling financially, struggling in all kinds of different ways. Um, and, and nine times out of ten, it, it's, it's linked to the simple fact that they're just not giving biblically. Amen? And, uh, you know, if you can't give biblically, guys, you've got some things in your life that don't belong. All right? And uh, that's just the way it is. And, uh, and I know, hey, guys, I know anytime you preach on money, anytime you do that, everybody, you know, they, they start tightening up. And they start, hide, as we used to say, they hide their checkbooks. And, uh, of course, these young people don't know what a checkbook is, but, you know, uh, you know what I'm saying? But, I mean, um, that's just what it is, guys. That's just the way it is. Um, I thank God for what he taught me uh, in how to give, and I thank God for what he's done for us in our life. Uh, I link every blessing we've had financially in our life to God's hand of, of blessing, God's hand of mercy, God's hand of grace, but God's hand of tutelage as well to teach us how to give. Um, you know, if you went back 30 some odd years ago and uh, was to look at what the Lord did with, with, for, for me and then later on for me and Denise, um, you know, you'd have never thought that. That's God. That's God. You're never going to outgive him. You just need to give right. And until you give right, God's not going to bless you in other areas in your life. Amen. If you're not faithful financially, you're not faithful in anything. Amen. And uh, so I'll, I'll quit harping on that point. Uh, but that is a good question. But, but again, it, I do come back to the whole idea. Because by the time we get into uh, when Paul, the, Paul the, uh, the chosen disciple, the one born out of due time, born out of due season, uh, Paul said, if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. Okay? Quite different than what you have in Acts chapter 4 here. But this is that infant state of the church. Okay? G. Campbell Morgan likens there were 60,000 people in this church at Jerusalem before they were ran out of Dodge. Uh, to go into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, okay? Because remember, it was the great persecution led by Saul, who is Paul, uh, that drove them out to do exactly what Christ told them to do from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Jerusalem, until you be endued from power from on high, that's Luke 24, okay? Then you go into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Well, 10 days later, after Jesus said that, man, the Holy Spirit of God came down, Acts chapter 2. Man, we're in Acts chapter 5 now. They're still hanging out. Acts chapter 6, they're still there. And the Lord is adding and adding and adding and multiplying. And there's thousands of people in the church, and they're still stuck in Jerusalem. God said, okie dokie, I told you to go. Here's what's going to happen. Of course, you know the the martyring of uh, Stephen. And then from that forth, the persecution, that's what drove them out to bring the gospel into the places where he originally told them uh, to go. So, different story in Acts uh, chapter 4, as you see in First uh, and Second Thessalonians, under the, uh, the direction of the Apostle Paul, who is a minister unto the Gentiles. Uh, you must understand that. All right, question number two. And this is what you're going to have a five-page printout for uh, here tonight. The only reason I'm not handing it out now is because you're going to sit there and read it while I'm talking. And uh, so I want you to hear what I got to say, then you take the printout tonight. Uh, we'll go over all of it. We have plenty of time right now. I'm saying we're not going to go over all of it. I meant to say not. But um, So if you want to turn in your Bibles, actually i got the verses on the screen. But we're going to reference four verses. Ephesians chapter 1, I mean, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, yeah, verses 5 and 11. 
And then over in Romans in chapter 8, <clears throat> Romans in chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. So the question tonight is concerning predestination uh, and predestinated, okay? Those, you know, I'm using those two words. Um, what you find in the Bible is that you find that this word predestinated um, and predestinate only shows up twice each, okay? Uh, that's all. You have entire doctrines of, of, of um, false teachers based on what is very minuscule in the Bible, and they twist the scriptures to make it known. So here's what we look at, guys. Ephesians in chapter 5, verses, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 11. Ephesians 1, 5 and 11. The Bible says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And then, of course, in Romans in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, this is what we find. We're going to break these down here in just a moment. Verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, to me, guys, when I look at these verses, when I look at these verses, they are as simple as one plus one equaling two. As simple. But for the Calvinists, the predestinated unto salvation lot, these are clear as mud, all right? They don't understand them. They do not understand their teachers, and that's why their teachers teach the way they do, so they break them down and wear them down mentally and emotionally, so they just give in and accept the ideology. I'm going to say this in the forefront tonight, and yes, it's going to be quite, uh, it, it may come off as being uh, arrogant, um, but the bottom line is Calvinism is a lazy man or woman's religion, Calvinism is a damnable heresy, according to 2 Peter 2. Anybody who adheres to the Calvinistic doctrine, more if they believe it, hook, line, and seeker, if they honestly believe that, they are not saved. Okay? If they hold to the five pillars, the, two, the, five, the, the tulip process of, uh, of Calvinism, if they believe that's how they got saved, they are lost as a day is long. Now, new Calvinism is something... Even worse, you're John Piper's, and I see people that will quote John Piper all the time. John Piper has some, of, uh, some good quotes. Before I really understood who in the world John Piper was, I read his book called Don't Waste Your Life. I thought, this is awesome, man. It was a motivational book. It wasn't anything worth spirituality, but it's a great motivational book. This is probably 15 some odd years ago. Then I find out who he is. He's a new Calvinist. He's a mystic is what he is. John, uh, not John, John Piper teaches... That under new Calvinism, since Jesus Christ died for all sins, right? The rejection of Jesus Christ, that sin per se is already paid for. Therefore, if you're part of the elect, you don't even have to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're just going to go to heaven. Now, I ask you tonight, under the realm of common sense, who do you think is at the foothold of that type of teaching? The devil himself. The devil, the Bible says that if thou shalt call upon the name of the Lord, okay? That if 
thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The conditional word is if, the action on your part is confess. Confess what? Jesus is God, and that he died for your sins and rose again. That simple, right? While we're on the topic, anyone who denies Jesus Christ's deity are lost and on their way to hell, okay? He's got to be God. He's not just your little savior in your pocket, your genie, okay? He's got to be your God. He's got to be God uh, in order to pay that price. So what we find this word predestinated or predestinated in Ephesians chapter 1, and that's in verse 5, we, we find it for the first time, and, and it's only, and I say the first time, um, technically Romans would have been written in A.D. Uh, 58, and uh, so Ephesians would have been written, I think, a little later than that, if I got my calculations correct. Uh, but nonetheless, either which way about it, your first time that these predestinated in the past tense is showing up for the first time in Ephesians chapter 1. Predestinate, uh, we find, show up in Romans chapter 8. We're not going to touch Romans because what we're going to answer and look at in Ephesians chapter 1 today will answer everything that we need to necessarily know. And uh, it only shows up in the Bible two times, and, uh, where, and this is where every high-minded, arrogant Calvinist, they go to pieces, and, and they've been trying to pick up the pieces ever since uh, ever since it was dropped. Verse 4, the preceding verse to verse 5 in Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, I don't have that on the screen. Verse 4 <clears throat> gives us a clear answer to what predestinated really means. It blows its slap out of the water. And I want to show you some common sense understanding as to why. Okay? So verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love. According as chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, we don't need to waste a, a lot of time to explain the text. But what we do need to understand is what happens with the word foreknowledge, as you see in Romans chapter 8. We now have these people, we have these Calvinists forcing the word foreknowledge to mean foreordained. And then they run over to Ephesians chapter 1 and say, all of a sudden, before the foundation of the world, it was foreordained for little Johnny to be saved and born again. That's how they take this thing. As a matter of fact, the very teaching, Kenneth Worst teaches that, page 366 and page 549, phenomenon number 5 and number 15. In his own book, in his own writings, they teach that the word foreknowledge means foreordained, Okay. So, um, so what this teaches you, and this is where the common sense comes into your, your realm today. It shows that, that someone is trying to get you in Christ before Christ ever shows up. See, you can't be in Christ until what? Number one, Christ shows up. Number two, Christ dies. Number three, Christ rises again. Number four, Christ goes back up to heaven. Amen. Same book, same Ephesians tell us that we are in heavenly places with Jesus. Yeah, you can't be in heavenly places with him tonight if yet you were there from the foundation of the world before he was there as has already been born here to fulfill prophecy, died and buried and risen again. Okay, so in other words, this is what happens, guys. Reverend Salmon's exposition on the passage um, and it's given over to, to two guys, Bingle and Calvin, which is the expositor's Greek text, page 248. 
It's still, they still see them lurking behind every word with the thought, perhaps, that the believer was in Christ before he was in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. So they're trying to put you in Jesus Christ before you were ever in Adam. You've got to think about that. So instead of wasting a bunch of time and, and paper and ink and on really what I would call an obtuse analysis, <clears throat> let's state some facts tonight. All right, here are some facts. And these are all going to be on the printouts that you're going to take home with you tonight. No man is in Christ until he is born again. What did Jesus Christ say in John chapter 3? Ye must be born again. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Very simple, yeah? Every man was in Adam when Adam died. When did Adam start to die? Even though physically he didn't die for 900 years, he started to die when he took of the fruit, when he fell. So everybody born from that point forward is in Adam. Make sense? You can't get in Christ because you, unless you're in Adam, you don't need to get in Christ, right? All right. Number three, the elect were not in Christ. They were aliens, all right? Alone in the world, children of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins, without hope, without God, and they were unknown. That is Galatians 4, verses 7 through 9, Ephesians 2, 1, 3, and 12. Those are the verses that say what you are. If you're an alien, you're not in Christ. If you're without hope, you're not in Christ. If you're unknown, you're not in Christ. Does that make sense to you today? But yet, wait a second. If you're over here, according, if you're foreordained and foreknowledge, then you should be already known before you're born. And does, you see what I'm saying? That's how Calvinism works. It throws you back and forth enough to where you're so confused and we lift up the omniscience of God. He knows all. We lift up the omnipotence of God. He, he is all-powerful. We lift up the omnipresence of God. He is everywhere at all times. We lift those things up to where now remove the free will that the omnipotent God gave us. Make sense? Number four, the Greek word for chosen in Ephesians 1-4 that we just read a moment ago is also found in Acts 13, verse 17, Mark chapter 13, verse 20. John 15, 19, Romans 9, 11, uh, and 11, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 27, and several other places. There is not one case where it occurs that it ever refers to anything decreed before the foundation of the world. Neither Jacob nor Israel were chosen before the foundation of the world. Neither was Paul, nor was Abraham, okay, chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the believer was chosen from the beginning. From the beginning is a stark difference than before the foundation of the world. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So they were chosen before, uh, from the beginning. How is the elect before the beginning? Doesn't add up, does it? All right. So number six, if, if election is eternal, how were you sanctified in eternity? Think about it for just a second. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, um, when Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 clearly states that we are anything but sanctified, and then we look that we're going to be sanctified in eternity, go ahead and turn over there. Turn over to 1 Peter. Give you a little break from my voice. We'll go to 1 Peter real quick. Look in chapter 1 and verse 2. So here we find this big word and this big twist and all this and that. And he says here, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, 
unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So how can you be sanctified in eternity prior if election was was eternal, meaning before the foundation of the world, when Ephesians 2 tells us that we were not sanctified? To some, just to make things very simple here, when predestinated is used in Ephesians chapter 1, when according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit is used in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, when predestinate is used in Romans chapter 8, every single one of those instances there in every other time are instances post-salvation. You are not predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son until which time you sign on the dotted line. Does that make sense? That's how, that, that makes it very simple of an answer tonight. I know we're making it a little more complex than it should be, and you have actually four and a half pages of notes that you're going to take home tonight so that you can use as a reference to answer this thing. But at the end of the day, when you look at predestinated and predestinate in Ephesians 1 and Romans chapter 8, then you look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, where it talks about the foreknowledge of God. Every drop of that has nothing to do with the lost soul. It has to do with the saved individual. So Andy, when he got saved and born again, from that second forward, when the Holy Spirit of God came inside that body, that, and right then, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Five seconds before that, there was zero predestination. Nothing. Does that make sense to you tonight? Predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's son only begins when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Now, the Calvinists right now that are listening to this or will listen to this, they're going to pull their hair out. They're going to write nasty letters to me. And they can write all they want. They ain't going to show up down here. I can promise you that. They won't show up down here. They won't bring their Bible. They're not going to sit here and and go verse by verse because they can't support their wicked doctrine. All they do is sit in their rooms and they read the books by these heretics who did nothing back 100, 200 years ago but write books because they wasn't outside winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ. People say that Baptists failed in writing books. The reason being is because Baptists were busy in the streets and the highways and byways uh, compelling people to come into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They wasn't sitting in some chosen, frozen office writing a bunch of nonsense. Amen. And I say this ain't nothing new. Calvin wrote in the 16th century, all he did was copy uh, um, Augustine's work from the, uh, from the 2nd century, from the 3rd century. That's all he did. It's, it's Augustinism is what it is, man, not Calvinism. He gets the credit, but it's ridiculous. Number seven, Matthew 22, verse 14, uh, the call precedes the election, okay? And that's a, that's a hook, line, and sinker right there uh, that the Calvinists cannot answer. The call, for whom he called, okay, precedes the election. You are elect once you receive the call or when you answer the call. Make sense? Now, all we're doing, like I said, we're just irritating Calvinists right now. They can't handle the truth of the scripture because they believe they are, uh, they, a Calvinist believes they are of more value than you are. And what's odd, man, <laughs> they believe their worth is more than the average Joe or anybody else because they were chosen. Yeah. So they believe their worth is more than other ones. And the odd thing about it is they believe their worth to be greater than other people, yet they never witness the gospel. All right. Uh, they, they, they essentially never give anything to the church to further the ministry. 
Uh, they, they attend church when convenient. They deny the purity of the scriptures and have the audacity to claim they are chosen. That they are elect. That they're worth more than another soul. The Bible tells me in Hebrews chapter 10, 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. If Jesus Christ, we know he died one time, rose again one time, yeah. But if he did that and did it for every single soul ever to be born, past, present, and future, what makes you think that you're so great and wonderful that God looked down to the scope of time and says, I'm going to choose you and I'm not going to choose her? That's devilish, man. That makes God a sadist to believe this type of doctrine. And these famous guys with these wonderful quotes that we see people uh, posting them, you need to do your, listen, you better do your research on somebody before you start posting quotes. Like R.C. Sproul, five-point tulip Calvinist, wouldn't walk across the street to see him if he was still alive, okay? John MacArthur, who has a load of good information, he really does. Not a MacArthur fan, but he is a Calvinist, all right? Now, he ain't a hyper-Calvinist, he's not a... He's not a, definitely not a new Calvinist. Him and Piper are at odds with one another. But I won't, I, don't, I won't quote his material because of what his doctrine and salvation believes. So you better be careful who you're quoting out there. Amen? Be careful. And so, guys, so if you were in Christ before the foundation of the world, that means you plainly fell out of Christ, doesn't it? So somewhere along the line, before the foundation of the world, if you was in Christ, by the time Genesis 2 shows up and Genesis 3, guess what? You fell out of Christ. And then somewhere along the line, you, you know, you got into Adam because you got out of Christ. And then you fell out of Adam at your conversion. You got back in Christ. Well, then why not keep the momentum up and fall out again? Does, it doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. I mean, my soul, man. So I want you to see real quick tonight, guys. And again, I'm not going to go over every one of these pages because, I mean, I think you have, uh, <laughs> you understand tonight. To make it simple, you are not predestinated to anything until you get saved. Hands down. And, and I tell you what, you know the people who won't, won't receive that? You know what I liken them unto? Remember when Stephen was preaching and Stephen started rebuking the council and he started lifting up Jesus Christ? What he did was give a, a Jewish his, a historical sermon and they's eating it up. He's eating it up. But he dropped that, that hammer on about Jesus Christ. And thou, I mean, he just dropped the hammer. You know what they did? The Bible says they stopped their ears on. And they started gnashing on him with their teeth. That's what these people do. They refuse to accept the truth for whatever reason. They're either elitist or they haven't come to the true saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I really believe the latter. I believe the latter. I know we want to be tolerant tonight. I'm not tolerant. You guys have known me well enough. Uh, I am not going to tolerate false doctrine. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very intolerant, and I'm going to keep being intolerant, and I'm going to be mean about it at times. I mean, I just, you know, I'll love a sinner. I'll love a sinner. I'll take a lost person. I don't care what they look like, smell like, act like. I, I, I will love on them until the day is long. But you give me one of these religious sites who are slaying and destroying the, the Word of God, no, sir, buddy, gloves are off. Gloves are off, Amen. Brother Charlie Andrews said one time, he said that you've tried, if you try to do something to the local church, I'll pray God kill you. I heard him say that in a meeting one time. That's how serious the Bible is when it comes to the local church and the Word of God. Amen? And I know that's a hard pill to swallow, and I know the snowflakes will probably, they'll, they'll, they'll not like that, but it is what it is. So I want you to observe 
how the plain English clears up the obscure Greek used by the heretics to teach these damnable heresies. The English cleared up this Greek found in first in 2 Timothy 1 9. Let's flip over there real quick. 2 Timothy 1 9. Makes it very, very clear. Love it. They try to Greek you to death, man. And uh and I like, hey, listen, I love etymology. I love studying the history, you know, the, the outline, the, the, the origin of words. It's great and it's wonderful. Um, but you've got to be careful what Greek text you're reading. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us uh, clearly here, uh, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Hey, stop, let's just stop for a second here. Um, back up. Who hath what? Somebody say that, repeat that. Okay, and what, else, what was the next thing he did? Okay, which one came first, chicken or the egg? Well, obviously the chicken came first, amen? Okay, then he laid an egg. Or she laid an egg, not he. All right, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, okay? So what we find here, guys, that, that we're told before the world began, and so again, we can go back to Ephesians chapter 1 4, but God gave us certain things, and these things were only given in Jesus Christ, not, not outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had to come, live a perfect, sinless life, die on the cross, buried in the tomb, and risen again before we could ever receive those things, before that we could be saved and the calling. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? All right. So Jesus Christ is the medium, if you will. We need to understand that. Uh, we can look at the similarity between 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. And uh, you can look at them in relation to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, of which we have already read. Look at how the similarity of the wording comes together. So the meaning then, guys, is clear. Before the foundation of the world, God decreed uh, that he would uh, choose no one in this age to become holy and without blame. You see, the commentators forget the purpose of the election as usual. What they do, uh, unless, unless they are in Christ, uh, they cannot receive, uh, receive that which is holy without blame. So Jesus Christ was to be the medium through all the blessings that will be dispensed. That's 2 Timothy 1, 10, okay, just after the verse that we just read. But if now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Okay? You were not in the beloved, as we read in Ephesians 1, 6, you were not in the beloved before Genesis 1, 1, nor was anyone else. Okay? Jesus had to come first and foremost. Why do you think Jesus Christ went to the heart of the earth for three days? Why do you think that the only sign ever given to the nation of Israel was the sign of the prophet Jonas? And he died for three days and three nights and was regurgitated up uh, from that well onto dry land. Why do you think that happened? Jesus Christ went down to paradise, Abraham's bosom, and preached the gospel. That's the only way paradise, that's the only way those uh, who were righteous in the Old Testament, how captivity was taken captive when Jesus Christ put the blood of the mercy seat uh, in heaven. Secondly, he crossed over there into hell and preached unto men. Why? To answer what we find right here, that salvation is only in Christ, that which we know. These things are made manifest, as you read here, but is now manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Very, very clear, very simple, if you will. So guys, I want to I touch on just a couple more things uh, that will be done, and I'll give you your, uh, your papers tonight as we, we leave. So again, I like, I'm going to repeat myself. You were not in Christ before Genesis 1-1. Neither was anyone else. 
Christ had no body until Acts chapter 2. That's talking about the body of Christ, the church, okay, uh, into which uh, you could enter in. We see that in John 17, verse 23. Therefore, the entire system of Calvinism, where it deals with election, is nullity. It's, it's null and void. It is vain. It is empty. It is, it, it, it's void, okay? It does not work. Predestination, according to verse 5, always allows, I'm sorry, always follows foreknowledge. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Predestination always follows foreknowledge, and election always follows foreknowledge. 1 Peter 1, 2. For this reason, the truth, according to these commentators, they miss. They, they had to invent a new word for, for foreknowledge. And in their own writings, they invent this new word called efficient decree or efficient foreordination. No Greek text speaking of foreknowledge has any such word in it. It's been created by Calvinists. There is not, you'll not find that word in the Bible or those words in the Bible. You'll not find it in any Greek text either. So the, these private interpretations of these men are attempts to read Calvinism or read Calvin into the words of the Holy Spirit. And guys, the Holy Spirit of God is going to have nothing to do with that. He's going to have nothing, nothing, nothing to do with that. All right. So to simply make sure that we answer these questions tonight and that we make them very, very clear. Um, predestination, okay? Predestination only has to do after a person makes a decision for Jesus Christ. And again, I said that probably 10 minutes ago. I want you to understand that the evidence of the truth that is exemplified when it comes to the Holy Scriptures, how a person is saved, how a person is sealed, how a person is born again, is not chosen uh, from the foundation of the world. Uh, you were not chosen. We know that, that, that God's will is what? That none should perish. His will is that none should perish. So if His will is that none should perish, and foreknowledge it has nothing to do with preordaining or predestinating someone, okay? I mean, here's, here's the 64,000-pound question. Does God know who's going to be saved? Absolutely. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Does God's foreknowledge choose that person to be saved? Absolutely not. Foreknowledge does not mean foreordained. They had to create a brand spanking new word or a couple of words in order to take their doctrine and twist it into this mind-boggling, devilish, damnable heresy. That's what they had to do, okay? So, it's a lazy man's religion, lazy woman's religion. Um, you know, you, you need to reject it at all costs. Uh, you are to have nothing to do with it because uh, Calvinism is just, is just vile. So, there's a, a third question to that that, that uh, I just really preached on this in a sermon, which made this one kind of easy. Can you tie in God's determined will? Now, this is where, <laughs> this is where the, the, the Calvinists have a heyday. I was in a meeting one time up in, um, in Chicago, and uh, I was in this meeting, the guy that was teaching on New Calvinism, what he was teaching on, actually, it was called the Grace Conference, tremendous conference. And um, I was in a seat and, uh, in this chair. It was a foldable chair. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of confidence in that chair, but I sat in it anyway. And we were there for quite a while. And it was almost like things happened in slow motion. I heard, ding, all right? And I knew then exactly what was happening. Me and that chair, are, we're, we're, we're buckling. We're hitting the ground, right? And uh, I caught myself like that, but the chair collapsed, and it made all kinds of sounds. About 110 people inside this room. And uh, just 
for once I was quick thinking. I said, and since we were teaching on Calvinism that day, I said, boy, I'm glad I got that out of the way. As if it was foreordained, it was going to happen no matter what. If I could, any other chair, I had, to, I had to choose that chair, and that chair was going to buckle on me. That's a Calvinistic idea. So, a Cal, I mean, you know, you could walk up to a Calvinist, slap them, and say, man, glad I got it out of the way, right? And they shouldn't get angry because it was foreordained. They won't see it like that, mind you. They won't see it like that. It's only when it fits their little agenda. So where does God's determined will come in? When it comes to free will and when, it's, uh, and when it comes to stepping aside from the Calvinistic's false doctrine. Again, like I said, I just preached on this in the sermon that was titled If the other day. So I'm going to just kind of, uh, you, you know, repeat some of that, if you will. But the determined will of God only applies. Here it comes. Okay, guys, the same place predestination, the same place election it comes to. It only applies to the saved. All right. The, pre, the, deter, the determined will of God. All right, so remember, there's a determined will of God. Things are going to happen no matter what, point A to point B, okay? It only applies to the saved. Therefore, it aligns with predestination as a predestination only applies post-salvation. So think about it like this. If you get saved tonight on whatever day it is, 8th or 9th of August, I forgot what day it is. If you get saved right here, right now, up until that millisecond prior to you being saved and born again, there is no predestination in your life, okay? There's no determined will in your life. God's will was that you get saved, but you get a choice, guys. You get a free will, okay? You can re- receive or reject. That's up to you. Now, I will tell you this. How many times you reject that opportunity? I believe that's limited. I believe that's limited. First sermon Carol ever heard me preach was God's finish line or deadline. Which one are you going to cross? R.G. Lee said there's an invisible, invisible line drawn across the, the, the constitution of the universe, unknown, unseen to man. But once you cross it, you won't even have a desire to be saved. Okay? So, saying that to make this point, predestination only applies to post-salvation. Again, and this is the will and, and plan which is absolute. It is his inevitable, unchangeable purpose and comprehensive plan which will bring him great praise and great glory. Surprisingly, okay, these types of plans are not exclusively uh, for world events or nations. We think sometimes that they are, but they're not. But rather, they are for you and I. Now, there is a determined will of God that happens with, uh, with nations, okay? We know Russia's part of the ten nations in the end, in the end times, all right? We know Germany is, Gomer. We know Turkey is. We know the ten nations because the Bible's already laid them out, all right? Now, there's probably good people in all of those nations, or I know there's good people in all of those nations. Nonetheless, there's a predetermined will that is going to happen with those ten nations that come against Israel in the end times in the tribulation period, right? But it is for us as well. So these types of plans, again, they're not exclusive. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, verse 16, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. So the 64,000 pound question again, when and where are these plans? When and where is the determined will of God in my life and in your life? I don't know. And typically, the only time you're ever going to know is afterwards. Do you know what I believe was a determined will of God? That I was going to move to Nashville and marry that woman. Okay? All right? That's, I believe that, that, that was a determined, that was going to happen one way or another. All right? Ephesians chapter 2 
And verse 10 tells us, uh, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. All right? There's a determined will that his body, his bride, those that are saved and born again, we are here as his workmanship. We are to do that which brings glory and honor uh, to him in this world. So the word of God reveals that we are his workmanship, we are created unto good works, and God has ordained that we should walk in them. So the Lord actively prepares each one of us for certain assignments in our life. Uh, he gives us unique abilities to make a, an impact on this world for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Okay? So we understand that. So, beloved, here's what we do know. We may not know when and where God's determined will is in our life, but we are instructed how to live in the life that God has given us. We are instructed to trust Him in His perfect plan that we oftentimes do not see. We are given free will within the determined will of God, his will is going to happen no matter what, but the decisions that you and I make on the path to and in the determined will decides uh, how or um, how much baggage, how many scars, or how many blessings we have once his determined will uh, is completed. I, I use Nashville as an example, okay? I, I believe in all of my heart the determined will of God after I was saved on the last day of 1990 uh, the determined will of God was for me uh, to move to Nashville, Tennessee, and marry Denise, okay? Now, I had an opportunity to go to Nashville in a different venue, all right, as a ball player. And the Lord impressed upon my heart, my days are up, their days are over with, and you're going to go into health care, all right? And that's what I did. And I went to school in Chicago, did my residency. Once my residency was over with in Florida, I got an opportunity to move to Nashville. Consequently, the same year that that team moved to Nashville. I was going to Nashville one way or another. Just to let you know another tidbit, as I drove through Nashville between Florida and Nebraska, I looked over at Nashville, I said, I'll never live in that city. Boy, that place is ugly. I always went there through night, and the NEC building had this yucky yellow lamp that sat in front of it, and I was like, I, I, I looked, I kept just speeding on 24, hitting uh, 24, Interstate 24, heading up and getting out of Dodge. Never lived there. Well, you guys know my track record when I say never, okay? But I'm saying all that to say this. I believe if I would have went with the first option, when I got to Nashville, I think I'd have much more baggage than I did in the option number two. I believe I'd probably had some more scars, maybe some heartache, I don't know, either which way about it. But the determined will of God was for me to be in Nashville to marry her. What happened between point A and point B had a lot to do with the decisions that I made. So the determined will of God, I don't, I, did I know that at the time? Absolutely not. Had I known there would have been, uh, you know, the, this wonderful, muscular, hot woman up there, man, I'd have left right away. I'd went up there three or four years earlier, right? But what would have happened? I'd have made a mess of things, wouldn't I? Because it wasn't a determined will of God to be up there three or four years earlier. It was to be there at that time. You see what I'm saying? So I'm making that point, guys. That's the determined will of God, how it ties to predestination, how it ties to foreknowledge, to ordination. We don't know exactly when nor where the determined will of God be fulfilled in your life. What we do know is that we are instructed how to live in this world today so that we can have the least amount of baggage and the great amount of blessings when we get to that determined will of God and that is completed and then we get to the next. Does that make sense to you tonight? Amen. So we understand this evening, just to sum everything up, and we're finished. 
predestination, predestinate, ordinate, foreordination, which is not there, foreordained, all of which occurs only after a person makes the decision to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The determined will of God in your life occurs for saved, born-again believers, okay? The reason I say that is because people will die without Jesus Christ, and they will spend eternity in what's called the torments of hell. They'll spend, I'm sorry, they'll spend a thousand plus years in the torments of hell, as we read in Luke 16. And then they're going to be taken out of hell, and then they're going to be standing at the great white throne judgment and given account for their sin, their, their works, and then they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. You understand? For all eternity. Where the worm dieth not and the thirst is not quenched. Pain, suffering, and torments like we cannot even fathom tonight. Saying that to make this point, that is not the determined will of God. Hell and the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. When you, when you go there as a lost person, you go as an intruder. You're not even welcome there. You're not going to be down there with your buddies having a party. You're going to be there screaming in the torments that, you, that, that you're suffering. That's Luke 16. So I'm saying that to make this point. The determined will of God was never, ever, ever intended for his creation to land in hell or in the lake of fire. He wants you to be saved. God, um, God is not willing that any should perish. Amen? But you have a free will and you can choose. You can choose heaven or you can choose hell. No answer at all is the answer no. Amen? So, the determined will of God occurs in the, in the saved person's life. Predestination to be conformed to the image of his son is after uh, a person makes a decision to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Predestinated and predestinate only deal with saved people and they only deal with after a person has received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for this time of Q&A tonight. I pray that you would bless it to the hearts of the hearers this evening. I pray, dear God, that uh, things were as simple as they can be. Uh, Lord, I want to thank you so much for a clear text. I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you for your Bible. But I thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy you've bestowed upon us in saving our soul, not according to our works and that which we have done, Lord, but all of what Jesus Christ has done once and for all, in whose name we ask these things tonight. Amen and amen. All right.